My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter. We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you. Right. So, Jay, I was telling you about a show that uh, my friend Jackie told me to watch, which is made by the CBC. We have a great broadcasting service here in Canada, if I do say so. And one of the shows they put out, which is actually on podcast, is called Under the Influence. It's not something I generally would actually listen to because it's about advertising. And advertising is, you know, something that's just not really in my, I have too many other things I'm interested in. But this particular episode, which is only 29 minutes, which I will link for everybody so they can listen to it if they want to was really, really interesting. And that's why she sent it to me because it really talks about what's happened in the last 20 years, 25 years, in terms of what's portrayed in Hollywood. Now let's start with the premise that Hollywood has been um, really responsible actually in a positive way to bring in characters that allow people to get more comfortable with uh, a whole bunch of issues that are difficult, right? Um, in fact, one of my favorite stories is Gene Houston being in India in the late 80s and uh, watching a production that Indian television had made um, of one of their great epics. And she was sitting in a village with a bunch of old women watching this. And the thing that came on afterwards was Dynasty. And, you know, Jean Houston was in shock. She turned to the to the old woman and said, how can you watch this garbage when you just watched this great epic drama? And the woman turned to her and said, it's all the same. The stories are actually the same. They're just, but what she pointed out was in those villages watching Dynasty was the first sort of example they gave to a lot of those women that they didn't actually, that women could be independent, that women could have careers, that women weren't always under the thumb of their husbands. So she said it actually fulfilled, of all things, it fulfilled a really important function. And I actually have seen this with telenovelas as well in Mexico, introducing gay characters, introducing characters that, that uh, you know, you might be more uncomfortable. Even here, we've seen the same thing with Will and Grace and whatever. His, the, under the influence, their, um, they, they propose that with the Sopranos, um, what happened is you introduced a type of anti-hero that has actually really, really impacted a whole bunch of things, including the way politics are played out and a whole bunch of things. And it, he referenced specifically, and I never watched The Sopranos because I don't like violence. I have problems with that. So I never watched it. So you probably did. You might be able to comment on this a bit more. I didn't. You didn't. Okay. But this is like, I'm sure everybody who's listening probably has watched watched this. So they'll know. There is one specific episode that, that involves a college visit that Tony Soprano does with his daughter to, you know, see colleges. And he sees while he's there, uh, a person who's under the witness protection program who had hurt his family. And basically he, he, he kills him in a very graphic, graphic way. And when the writers and the directors uh, proposed this to the producers, they were very upset. They said, this is not going to be good. You people like Tony Soprano, but if you, if you do, uh, if you do, um, if you introduce this, they're going to be turned off, et cetera, et cetera. But they stuck with it and it became the most popular episode. And their argument is this kind of initiated a wave of shows that are taking the classic anti-hero, which you can talk a lot of this. It's so prevalent in literature. But what they've done is they've made them kind of acceptable in big ways. And, and the difference, actually, I was speaking to my sister about this. She said the difference is that these anti-heroes, you know, they seem to be wealthy. They have other things that kind of give them some whatever, you know, that people will accept. But um, but yeah, the troubling thing is that then you make things that were unacceptable before much more acceptable and much more. And you can you can think about the, the I guess the the Walter White and obviously Breaking Bad and then 
succession. I haven't seen it, but it seems everybody there is terrible. Uh, so it's just an interesting concept about, okay, has this changed what's happened? Is this, this, is this like the shadow issue coming to the foreground in a big way and that we have to accept these kind of characters to accept that there are parts of ourselves that are like that. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that out and see what you think in terms of, because of course in literature it's big, but I'd be interested in seeing how this crosses over to other places. So what do you think about this? I think it's, I think it's been around for longer than that, but I think it's probably more pronounced right now. The first thing that uh, when I, when I look at movies, I think, 1967 or 69 was Bonnie and Clyde and Bonnie and Clyde um, the way that it was portrayed in that movie they were both very endearing characters and you couldn't help but root for them you know because they were cheating the system right Uh, and you know then you have the godfather in in 1972 and things like that but even in the, um, and I'm not a Marvel fan, and I'm not sure if this guy's Marvel or DC. I, I'm, I'm not a superhero guy. What's the name? There was, oh, 10 years ago or so, there was uh, an anti-hero guy, and I can't think of his name. <laughs> I don't know who you might be referring to. Um, it, it was Ryan Reynolds played him, and I cannot think of... Uh, You're talking to the wrong person. I don't watch anything, but... Okay, but it was an anti-hero. Okay, it doesn't matter. We'll 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 mm-hmm. face it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Same idea that uh, that basically it's glamorized. Is that what you're saying? Right. Right. Okay. No, I haven't seen that film, but I remember. You know, that was the that was when that came out. I remember talk about the anti-hero being being um, uh, big then. Right. Well, in this particular episode, actually, what they do, which is really clever is they because it's an advertising show they look at how that impacted advertising now that's where we really see if something works or not right so prior mm-hmm. to this who who would you have in advertisements you know perfect people you're driving perfect cars you know whatever it's a it's a whole kind of thing you're creating and you certainly are if it's heroic you're going to put it on the on on you're going to try to sell something with this but what they started noticing is advertising started taking a leaf from this and started using some very strange um uh ways of uh promoting so the two examples that jump to mind is one of them is a really really bad hotel in amsterdam the property is just awful um and they decided well why don't we just actually take that that the idea that we're the most awful hotel that's what TripAdvisor, i guess said and we're going to make that our selling point and they started really exaggerating how bad they were you know uh you know they would advertise we don't clean your rooms maybe you'll get a window um their bed bugs come for free i mean crazy stuff the occupancy rate actually went up from 40% to 80%. So this is this is where you see, okay, is this working or not? Because when you're talking about selling products, right, you're seeing the translation of what people's values are. And the second one is Ryanair. Anybody who's ever flown in Europe uh, and done the cheap trip over, you know, to a weekend and wherever has flown Ryanair. It's just terrible airline. It's absolutely terrible. You pay practically nothing, but you actually, it's, you know, it's insane to, and they did the same thing on Twitter. Basically, if you went and complained, they would just make fun of you, you know, and this became part of the whole Ryanair thing. So that's where you think, okay, this is really taking a different role than when Bonnie and Clyde was made and when, um, and I, similarly, I guess the Godfather that I don't think advertisers at that time would have taken that kind of thing and just ran right. with it. So something right. has psychically changed um, in in the way people see things. And I guess the the question 
that they were trying to raise, they never raised it, but I think behind all of this is how does this impact our political discourse, right? If you suddenly take the anti-hero and you make this, you know, despicable person acceptable, how, how far do we take it, right? Then afterwards, how, how does it show up in the culture? And I, you know, I think that's, that's a valid question, given what we're seeing worldwide. So that's why I thought it was interesting. But then I thought literature, and you're right, just like in movies, it's always been there. I mean, I, the, a book I'll, I'll mention that nobody will ever read or has read or whatever, but it's a 16th century um, uh, work uh, of the picaresque, which is a, a style that developed in Spain, which is very, very popular. And it was really the guy that gets away with stuff, right? And there's a particularly young boy who tends to a blind uh, man who, who cheats him awfully, but this guy's also a scamp in every way. But he was part of that tradition. And well, what he did is he was criticized in that, that particular author was criticizing the nobility and criticizing the Catholic Church. So that made that work really. And then you can see it right along the line. You know, you can see it in, uh, well, you can see it obviously every Shakespearean play has has the the hero or the anti-hero woven in. But in terms of the the actual, as a main character, I guess Salinger does this really well. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that do it. But the, the, the difference, I guess, is there is some redeeming quality. So the one that came to mind for me, because I'm such a lover of Dostoevsky, everybody loves Pride and, and uh, not Pride and Prejudice, that's a totally different work. Um, <laughs> what, what am I thinking? Crime and punishment, totally different. Um, but Roskolnikov, right? He kills the pawnbroker uh, and, and, and he does it in a methodical, kind of detached way. But the thing about him, he's still at the end is redeemed by the fact that he suffered and he's understood that what he did was wrong, and that's part of the whole Russian Orthodox Church kind of way. Well, you can do whatever you, you you like, but if you come to some sort of realization about how how horrible it was, and, and you find redemption in that through suffering and whatever, then it's fine. It's not that it's fine, but you know, there you you don't totally write the character off uh, because of that. So you were saying uh, to me earlier, music. There's also examples where you can find it. So go on and tell me. I, it's a hard. I have a hard time finding music itself that contains that because right. that's I see more uh, along the lines when it comes to music is uh, kind of the the whole rock and roll story basically I mean you can there's a blues a blues guitarist and singer by the name of Robert Johnson and the myth surrounding this is that there, there's a lot of social stuff around it I'm not going to get into that but it, but basically it's the skin and bones of it, of the myth is selling one's soul to gain power. And that, that a lot is what I think the rock and roll myth became. You see it with the Beatles and people, I think, would attribute, you know, the, the heroic with the Beatles. But, but the fact is, is that in a way that they had to sell their soul because whenever they first were started in the early 60s, they were an edgy, bluesier type of band and then when Brian Epstein comes along and wants to shape them give them cute little bull haircuts and make them wear suits uh, you know and write these cute pop songs they completely change their image in order to be more appealing to the masses right. and, and and that's actually something that uh, I think a few of them regretted later on that they did that especially John I think he had a lot of resentment about being the cute boys and, and not being actually who they were, which I, I think they did. They were able to find that at some point. But there is a there is a myth around rock and roll and, and quote unquote making it. And it's, it's chasing this thing where basically you become so powerful that you are there, there's not much responsibility attached to you. 
Uh, you can get away with anything, you know, and people love you for it. And and to me, the rock and roll story uh, is is a good example of, you know, that myth is run the antihero myth is running through, you know, rock and roll. That's interesting because you know where that came from, really. It's the 19th century and it's Lord Byron. I don't know if you know anything about Lord Byron, but Lord Byron, of course, is the first kind of, he's a great romantic poet who lives this crazy, crazy, crazy life. I mean, his sexual appetites were absolutely notorious. I mean, he was insanely, and he was very, it was really interesting. If you read a lot of the accounts, he was really obsessed with his figure. He dieted, which was really odd at the time. You see pictures of Byron. He's got this kind of rock star type of uh, persona already lined up. And he, of course, died young in Greece. Um, but he was notoriously bad and people commented on the fact that he was bad, but he was great, this great poet. So he got away with it. And th what they've tracked is that the romantic period is the first time you see this kind of artist coming to, to the foreground. Lord Byron. Okay. What was I saying about Lord Byron? So Lord Byron. Oh, anyway, Lord Byron was again, um, the, the sort of prototypical rock star before rock stars. And that's because there's a change in the way artists are seen from the 18th century to 19th century, you go from artists like Bach, who's an artisan in some ways, he's just a, you know, somebody who is able to compose something, but isn't seen as some glorified figure to the 19th century, which starts putting all these poets on some pedestal and, you know, suddenly, and even not only poets, Beethoven, you know, suddenly these people are larger than life. And it's because it coincides with the rise of the concept of the self as an individual, right? There's this great book that I can't remember the, the name of the title, Exactly, but it's a history book. And what they did is they tracked that concept of the individual coming online just as people were suddenly having their own bedrooms in the late 18th century before they were all asleep together. If you had space, you get your own bedroom. But actually, weirdly, the rise of mirrors, mirrors were really exp uh, expensive. Suddenly people could look at themselves. So they got this. And I'm just thinking how that translates today to the Instagram world, right? Where everybody is recording themselves constantly, looking at themselves constantly, at least, you know, kids. And so I, I don't know, it would have had impacted again but, and the other thing is the rise of diaries. People start actually having personal diaries, which wasn't the case before. So the I becomes really emphasized. Anyway, neither here nor there, but certainly Lord Byron is an example, okay, of uh, of the first type of, you know, badass uh, uh, poet that goes around. Uh, basically also the reason he's liked is he also is against the status quo and he's fighting off, he's fighting revolution in a foreign country. And I mean, how, how more romantic can you get than that, right? I think um, I, I think with the antihero in whatever form you're you're talking about, well, especially like the the uh, the shows that like Breaking Bad that are Breaking Bad Narcos is another one, even though that one's based on some historical facts. Right. You're I think people have in in their egos have this fantasy to outrun their shadow, to outrun mm. uh, and and. That's what I see, and that's what I experience within myself when I watch these things. Is can this person beat the beat? You know, beat the system, beat beat cheat life. Can they, you know, make it to this all-powerful state where they don't have to worry about responsibility to others, or, right. or and just and live basically like a child? It, yep. Yeah. And that's uh, I. Yeah, it, but there's there's something that that will hook you into that, and I think right. it's very easy to get hooked in that, and that happens with musicians all the time. Right. Right. And the same story gets told over and over with musicians, especially right. in in um, you know pop music. People that have have done whatever they can to get where they can and and be as big as they are, and then you know things come crashing down on them. Sunshine. 
right right that's interesting i mean uh uh the, the troubling thing is when you start elevating these people to to the to the kind of heroic uh thing that you might put a nelson mandela just picking the name out of a hat here right right and they're two very different types of approaches to life and i think you might have just hit on the important thing once a child like approach to life where you have no responsibility to anybody else where basically it's all you where I can do whatever the hell I want and I'm responsible to no one. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that. If you look at it as um, uh, how healthy is this? I mean, this is all like a big ego story, right? That the ego loves to be the son of attention, Uh, but it's kind of dangerous. And we're seeing this at large, you know, I just thought of Berlusconi who just died in Italy, right? That's like a crazy out of control ego who was at the head of a country for, for, a long while, hugely controversial, involved in, in, you know, all sorts of horrible things like, you know, uh, sexual improprieties, like of any type. And I think, okay, are we at the point where these become the heroic? And by the way, you do see it with some characters that are on the internet right now who are definitely, and that's the whole thing. Yeah, I'm really bad. I got, what's that guy's name who was under house arrest in Romania? Andrew, whatever. I can't remember uh, his name. Andrew Tate? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, how Tate. did... Yeah, how, that's and, a great a, example. Yeah, but he has a huge following. So I'm scared mm-hmm. to think how, what the hell is happening that that person, you know, with those kinds of ideas have a huge following of young men. I mean, that that that's poisoning the well. I'm just going to bring up, bring up um, a book I'm going to recommend, which um, or a writer I'm going to recommend, Ben Okri, who's a Nigerian British writer, who has this great line with, and I can't remember it exactly, but it's something to the effect of beware of the stories you tell, because suddenly they are poisoning you, you know, totally. And I'm thinking these stories are poisoning us in some ways, right? And, you know, you can't do anything. Once they're out of the bag, it's out of the bag. So I try to think of, okay, is there a is there a reason they're out of the bag? And, and maybe, you know. I think ultimately, I think, it, now I know you and I have talked about the very, the recently we've talked about the word power, mm-hmm. but someone that's not, that's not can truly connected themselves and, and with other people. They lack a certain inner power. And I mean that in a positive way. Right. I, I mean, I mean, not, not some egoic thing, but agency and responsibility for your life. And, and there's a sense of just inner power. And, and what I think is, is that's resulting in people looking for power outwardly. People like Andrew Tate, it's all about how can I master this or that? How you know, and and so that that lack of of inward power for for uh, lack of a better word is I think resulting in people seeking it outwardly. Uh, because says, what what are the things? Uh, what are the? I mean, Andrew Tate's basically selling the formula. He's selling you the rock star model, basically, you know, how to get all these women, how to, you know, be the alpha, you know, be be the the largest guy in the room, how to make the most money, how to be, you know, uh, and and it's so all of these things. And to me, those are derivatives of, you know, their symptoms, their uh, what comes from a a lack of connection to who we are. Right. Uh, to our wholeness, I guess, is what right. I would say. So then what we're talking about is exactly what Jung identified eons ago, which is basically the feminine, again, is missing there, the connection mm-hmm. to to something relational that actually would disallow, because as we speak, Tate is in under house arrest in Romania for basic exploiting of women. So this is not somebody who is doing this 
uh, as a philosophy only, like he doesn't just say it, he's living a life that's, that's actually criminal, right? So you think, okay, uh, <laughs> this is the voice that is impacting young men. Well, no wonder we have a huge problem. But, but the, again, I think there has to be a reason why this is all coming up because I like to put it in a larger context. What is it that's being, and maybe you do need to analyze because these people have been around for a long time. The only reason we know now is that the internet is amplifying their voices. So we happen to know who they are and they have huge influence because we're living in a this kind of connected world, <laughs> ironically. The connected right. world is bringing this kind of person into the foreground. And, and you know, and I think there'll always be uh, people, and, and it speaks to what you said earlier, that there'll always be people that say, oh, it's not me, it's it's uh, it's the women, or it's not me, or so this guy's going to teach me a way to, but it's all about control, right? It is the back to right. the power, right? And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah that, that, and I'm wondering if we're, Again, the stories that Ben Okri talks about, if it's not time that we change the stories or that we need more people telling stories. And I'm not talking about, you know, sugary, saccharine, do good, because they're really boring and right. nobody wants them. But the, the great thing about a Shakespearean character, like, you know, usually like Iago is, Iago's kind of one of the worst <laughs> choices because he's not usually as, he's not as as developed as other um, as other uh, characters, like maybe like Lady Macbeth, but there was something about them that was a little bit more complex and that you had to see the feeling that it just didn't come, come out of nowhere and that it was done for power's sake, right? And I'm just going to point out, they all got punished in the end, right? There was mm -hmm. some sense of like, yes, at the end, they do not get away with things. They're able, and now we're like, oh no, they get away with it. Then this is incredible. And it's, to me, it's like, yes, it's like you saying to yourself, well, I can get away with that kind of behavior. It's incredible. And I guess you're right. It's a child's way of looking at the world, right? I'm hoping that's all it is. I'm trying to make sense of it. And honestly, it's a bit depressing. I don't know. Well, obviously someone like Tate is exploiting something that's there. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. You, uh, you, can't, you can't exploit something if it's not in the person, right? Right. You don't, you don't follow this guy. You don't, you don't sit in front of him and say, I want to hear what this guy has to say. Right. So that right away tells me, okay, it has to be a certain type of person that's really going to be receptive to it, but there'll be lots of people who are right. That's the way it is. You're seeing it again in the political arena. And so you think, okay, and I, I can always speak from Canada, you know, some of the bad actors that are that are here, some of them who are very big names to people out there are sowing a lot of division, which doesn't need to be so, I mean, there's no need for it. It's like, a, but it's a political power uh, boy. We saw that with, uh, with uh, the guy in England. Um, <laughs> I'm blocking him out. All those his crazy hair is that. What's his name? For God's sake, it just there's just oh important. oh yes, the, uh, yes. Why I am I having a problem? For God's sake. Yeah, he's the he's the break the guy that was there for Brexit. Brexit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what? Oh, but oh, I can't God. think of his name. I kept Johnson. I, Johnson, Johnson, Boris Johnson. Oh my God, I can't believe I would have forgotten his name. Anyway, uh, I guess I blocked him out. But anyway, the point is that you're seeing people take power and using these kinds of ta ta uh, tactics to say, okay, and backed by so-called intellectuals that will say, well, yes, this is the way to do it. And that's why it's troubling. And I think that that was why when I, when I heard that and I thought, wow, I never thought about how this actually now applies to advertising. That's pretty well, that's when advertisers say this is the way to go. And, uh, you know, let's, let's be clear, the examples they use, Ryanair, you know, they're a low budget airline, you know what you're getting. And the right. fact that it's a, the fact that it's a, a hotel that seems like a hotel from hell in Amsterdam. Well, okay, the same thing. But the fact that it would still be considered witty, and I don't know, you just, it enters conversation as something that's acceptable. So where do we stop with it? Anyway, it's just something to, to, uh, to think about. It really, really struck me. And then it also struck me because I, I was thinking about how this has been done traditionally in literature. And there have been characters, but look at Robin Hood. Robin Hood's a great example, mm -hmm. right? 
he he is he's the guy's robber right but he's stealing to help the poor so everybody forgives him it's like okay but you're doing right. it for the right thing i think if there's a social criticism that's in there you're trying to write an imbalance that i guess i think we forgive it but i think when it comes to be just total ego grab for me then i think it becomes a, a i think it's what maybe that's what's troubling me it's not the rest of it yes that's it i've identified it <laughs> that's what troubles me <laughs> it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like yours troubled somehow i don't know i don't know are you Trouble in what way? But by this, by this, this rise of this completely putting people who are absolutely deplorable, I'll use the word, and holding them to to be the heroes of the age, you know, because I guess, get away for, with stuff. I, guess I, I didn't think I'd say this, but I guess I have <laughs> this very seldom happens. But for whatever reason, I, I feel like the pendulum's going to swing. No. OK. You have hope. You're giving me I hope. Do. That's good. Yeah. How so? How do yeah, you think? How I, does, what, what would that look like? Well, I mean, it'll always be reflected in art. Uh, that's where we'll see right. it. Uh, and the veneration of, you know, I, I think we're at a time where, you, you know, you're, you're seeing some people fall. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that that shakes up delusion. Thing. I mean, you can, you can look at Kanye West, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he's another one that's kind of met uh, some demise Right. Uh, and, you know, there's there is what's going on with politics right now. And and, Bor- and Boris Johnson went down. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I went down yeah. and he's and he just had a report. He even left as an MP because he was damned for his behavior during COVID. No, absolutely. Right. Eventually they catch so, up with you. Yeah. Right. That's so that start people start recognizing a pattern. Maybe that'll resonate resonate internally. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I'm kind of hopeful. I'll tell you what gives me hope. OK. Ted Lasso gave me hope. I realized, oh, watching, yeah. and I don't watch a lot of stuff. So to me, maybe this, and we started watching because we're a soccer family, right? We love soccer. And this is a great concept of a guy going, <laughs> a football coach going off to England, which is really the biggest serious soccer place in the world, or as they would say, football. Um, anyway, and going there and taking over the helm of a, you know, sort of minor league kind of team. And what, what happens, but what's beautiful about it, and I think the reason people reconnected to it was that, Ted Lasso as a character is just brilliant because, and by the way, uh, in episode one, they have a book on the table and it's by James Hollis. And I thought, okay, this is where this is all coming from. These guys that are writing it are really steeped in uh, therapeutic language. So they really understand. Mm -hmm. But because now it's ended, I'm not going to reveal anything, obviously, because people haven't seen it all. All Most people, or I guess I don't know where people are, but I won't record. But what I would say is that I had to think about, well, why has this affected me so much? And I thought what they did really, really well is use the concept of forgiveness. And you really see this in the third uh, third season to such great effect to realize how incredibly powerful it is that you can't end up, you end up in like, you just end up so emotionally touched. And that is, that is, a, yeah, they actually have a, there's a quote, I'll say, it doesn't matter who said it, that comes directly from, from Hollis, I think, because Hollis at one point says to one of his patients, um, if you don't forgive your husband, right? Who, you know, he cheated on her or whatever, the problem is you're binding yourself to the hate. Like you're, you're binding yourself to him forever. The point is you don't forgive for him. You forgive for yourself. And I remember we had a, a talk years ago in, in my meeting uh, with one person who belonged to the group at the time, doesn't anymore, who's having a real problem with this concept because she was confusing the notion of forgiveness with condoning, right? And she had mm-hmm. bad parents and whatever. But I thought that was the way he introduced it and the way it played out. Yeah, this is why people are connecting because you don't see that. And also the value of friendship. I think that's never really explored very well. Um, and this ex- explored extremely well how powerful connections can make you feel like you were saying, healed, right? And whole. Um, but ultimately it's it's Ted Lasso, this guy who has his own um 
completely internal problem with with his parents and yet who's incapable incapable ever of being angry at things that most of us would absolutely crumble okay and get rid no he is able to be the voice of reason always go back to forgiveness except when it comes to himself which is what makes it so interesting so i look at it and i think okay so there are stories that are not poisoning the well and what i thought was really funny is i thought okay i, I go to facebook to see what groups are created because i'm always amazed this used to happen with other spaces prior to facebook but now it's facebook <laughs> And sure enough, there's all these support Ted Lasso support groups, right? And um, one of the rules of the Ted Lasso uh, Facebook groups is you can't say anything negative, which which is ludicrous because there are negative things said in Ted Lasso itself. But it's the idea, look, we have enough negativity. You're coming here because you were attracted to a story that actually was trying to put out positive, different view of the world, right? Anyway, so when you say that art, or this is not necessarily art, but stories, the counter stories, the, the counter narrative, I would say that that would be a counter narrative. And the only one I found actually recently that, that really speaks to that to me. Well, th that surprises me because not Ted Lasso. I'm surprised by something that that reminded me of. I, I just finally watched the last episode of Better Call Saul. And, oh. <laughs> and, and, uh, and Saul is uh, an anti-hero. And this has been out long enough <laughs> that... I don't think I'll be troubling anyone. I'll just right. say it in the in the um, uh, most general terms as far as telling a story, the anti-hero does something heroic, and that's how yeah. it that's okay. how it shifts. Yeah. See, but that but but that's actually a redemption story. Then it's not an yes. anti-hero at that point, right? So my my son loves Better Call Saul. He's on us to watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it, and I keep saying, okay, okay. He just absolutely loved that. He liked it even better than Breaking Bad. And I didn't realize that that was what happened. I'm trying to think of, I think any character at the end who does the right thing actually does save the, the whole, I think Walter White never does, or maybe he does. No. I think he does. Well, yeah. well he does in yeah. a way. He does yeah. in a way. Yeah. A little yeah. thing, but I mean, you know, he's a in the larger thing, context yeah. of things. It's harder, but yeah, there, yeah. The, I, I think you can, you can do something that redeems things at the end. You don't have to be, you know, whatever, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So. But, but with that, with that, I mean, you know, we were talking about reasons to be optimistic, but we just came up with two recent examples right. in uh, in different shows. Now, now the show you're referencing is completely different. I mean, yeah, Ted I Lasso. Ted Lasso is is he's he's developed heroically throughout, right? Yeah. But Saul has a like you said, kind of a redemption at the very end. Right. Right. I have to say one thing that I think the reason I love Ted Lasso is that I was just talking to somebody else um, a couple, I guess a week ago. And I said that when I start to think what has felt redemptive to me is conversation, right? That's mm -hmm. what's the basis of my Sophia group. It's, I think what's great about Ted Lasso are the conversations that happen there. They allow space for error. They allow space for stupidity. Um, but at the end, there is a willingness to, to have love take over everything else. And, and we're not talking about romantic love. We're talking about actually right. that's the least interesting thing with Ted Lasso. It's all about friendship and male, male, female, 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 male. I mean, it's just fantastic. But ultimately it's that allowance, right? For the fact is that we're really all ridiculously flawed and you can laugh at it, but at the end of it, you know, there's only one character there that it just has no redemptive arc. And, and actually he's, I think, the least developed and the least interesting. But in the, in the main, what you're getting a sense of is that through dialogue, you can really, and this is at the heart of Socratic method. It's the idea that what we're not doing is making space for that, just sitting down and saying, okay, can I hear what's between the words here? Because a lot of Ted Lasso is about people's very poor relationships to parents. And then what happens when you make the world your parent, which is what happens all the time, by the way. So the fact that this mm -hmm. is 
this translates so well. So it's a really psychotherapeutic kind of show, which I think is why a lot of people felt uh, really good watching. Uh, so anyway, uh, I guess we can leave it there, but I just, uh, I, I guess what I was going to say, okay, we, we've actually recommended things to watch. I was thinking, what's the best book to offer? And I actually think it is Dostoevsky because Dostoevsky is like the master at everything. So I'm going to leave anybody with anything I'd say. If you haven't read Dostoevsky, you absolutely have to. Everybody will read Crime and Punishment. I actually think The Idiot is an absolute masterpiece and it has a redemptive arc in there as well, but it also has one of the most compassionate and Christ-like figures you'll ever have was just Finch Meishkin. Um, so both, there's only another book and I would really recommend this book to people that have not heard of this author. He's now a Canadian senator, but he was a well-known author prior to it. And that is um, Mercy Among the Children, which is one of the most beautiful books, novels published. Actually, there are two Canadian novels that I would leave people with. One is Mercy Among the Children, David Adams Richards. And the other one is um, A Fine Balance by Rohanton Mystery, who's a Canadian uh, writer from India originally. And in this book, I find balance, I mentioned it because it's set in Italy, both uh, in Italy and India, both of them are absolute, just, yes. They're the kind of books that you read and you think, okay, I can, I can make sense of the world. The world actually isn't as heavy, even though both of them are actually really sad in big ways, but they're so powerful um, at allowing for, yeah, for connection. I guess that's the way I would put it. musically what would you do what would you say nothing last time jay come on you gotta give me a song one one song okay well i mean anything i i I can't i can't think of a song as being um what about okay what about any of the artists you mentioned is there uh well you mentioned uh you got me to listen to it then i actually i actually posted about it um maybe there's no redemption in it but the story is great what what did you talk about the johnny cash version of hurt that rick rubin um actually produced because because you know i saw it today and i was really affected tell me about that story leave that with people can easily uh, search that on youtube because it's quite quite an amazing thing i don't know how much of a story i have to tell about it well no just how it came about no just, no just how it came about tell a lot of people may not know who rick rubin is so let's start that okay and just short just kind of a, what what happened how, how did the johnny cash end up singing a song that if, unless i'm mistaken comes from a punk group uh, uh nine inch nails they're kind of a goth Okay. Um, not something I associate a... with Johnny Cash, right? That's all. Right, right. But how did yeah. he end up singing this song, which is a very powerful song? But how did he end up singing it? Uh, um, well, uh, I I don't remember exactly how the two came together, but uh, Rick Rubin had this idea of Johnny Cash singing other people's music, right. but doing it in only a way that Johnny Cash could. Right. And so, and the thing I like about Rick Rubin is every interview I've heard with the guy, he has the highest sensibilities and and abilities to draw out, you know, the essence of an artist. And he, he certainly did that with Johnny Cash, because when I think of Johnny Cash, and, and we're talking about the song Hurt, 
Nine by Nine Inch Nails. And that was such a perfect song for Cash. And, and uh, there, there's always been, you know, you think of Johnny Cash as this rough and edgy guy. And he is, but there's also always been a vulnerability with him because he he um, he was very personal in his music and uh, he went through a lot. He suffered a lot. And so him singing, I mean, that's, he, he's had a very painful life or had. And uh, so him singing that, matching him up with that song, Hurt, was, um, yeah, particularly powerful. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because... Because you know me, as soon as you tell me something, I will research it till it's like dead on the ground. And reportedly, the video that you sent me, he died six months after. His wife died first, mm-hmm. three months after. Mm-hmm. And then he died shortly after. And so it's considered particularly poignant because of the, you know, what happened. But uh, yeah, I mean, I had never heard the song. Obviously, I'm not that connected, as you know, to a lot of things. I had not connect, uh, heard the song. And I honestly don't know a lot of Johnny Cash either. Right. But that combination was a great way to 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 introduce me to both because it's like, oh, okay, this is this is leaves you. Yeah. Yeah. You pay attention. Well, I mean, in, the other thing I, I take from it too that is that in the music business, like in acting, you know, once you reach a certain age, you're kind of discarded. Yeah. And so Ruben taking that on and making something beautiful out of it was right. Um, right. pretty impressive. I'm trying to, I'm having a bit of a, a mental block. I've started reading this book that you also recommend. What the heck is the, is it the creative act? Is it the creative I think, I believe it is. Um, but, but there's a, it, he begins the book with a fabulous quote and let's end with that quote because it's incredible uh, by a guy called Robert Henri. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the last name correctly, but the quote is the object isn't to make art. It's to be in that wonderful state, which makes art inevitable. And that's just, what a great quote. I don't know where he found it or who this person is, but of course I will find out because I'll track it down. But what a great way. Yeah. And it's a good book. And I'm just, just because why not? I'll just uh, check what the name I want to make sure that, because it's a book I would, I I can't recommend because I just started it and it could be, I get enthusiastic about things and and then later I go, oh, maybe that's not the book. Although you you've read this book, I take it. And no, sorry. no, oh, I just okay. saw it. I just saw it today, oh, okay. and I'm like, well, I need to share this. Okay, so it is called the Creative Act, and so far so good. And I think he starts uh, with something that yeah, maybe we'll do with this about the definition of what makes an artist, which is you know really important because I think the 19th century, just to circle, go back to that, uh, try to define the artist as some special being that has these incredible powers. But the first thing Rick Rubin says is forget that. <laughs> everybody's creative which is absolutely 100 true it's how much you're allowing yourself to to go out and play right how much permission have you given yourself how much permission did you feel the culture gave you and i see it all the time with people i guess because you just naturally produce music and i have stories rolling around in my head and i don't have stories i make my life into a story but everything is storied um and it's just so natural that when i see people that are so afraid it's so sad it's like <laughs> because i hear them and i think oh these are great stories but there's something in them that has never given, and there's all sorts of reasons, you know, the parents, the husband, it doesn't matter. So I think that he started with that before anything else, the creative act, it belongs to everybody. I just thought, okay, this is going down a great path, but I'll put it out there. I haven't read the whole thing, but when I do, then I will refer back to it. But I think I left with enough, uh, I left people with enough, uh, with enough books and hurt definitely is, is uh, worth it as well. So we'll end there. Thanks for listening. If you like Jay's music and would like to support the creation of more, follow the link to the GoFundMe page in the show notes. You can support my work by buying my new novel, Invocation, 
at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and for many booksellers across the world. For now, until next time.